Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Azure podcast with your host Sam Foote and Alan Armstrong. If you're new here, we're a pair of Azure and Office 365 focused IT security professionals. Each week we talk about a specific topic in the space. This week it's episode 11 of season 2. We're going to have a chat around Microsoft Purview, a unified data governance service that helps you to manage and govern your on-premise, multi-cloud and software as a service data. Hey Alan, how's it going? Hey Sam, I'm not doing too bad. How are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Really good. Um, been up to too much? Anything exciting happening recently? Uh, no, just just working hard. Are you preparing for the end of uh, to Mod North to take over from basic authentication soon? Maybe we should do a public service announcement for anybody listening around that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, getting prepared for uh, Microsoft to turn off all of the legacy authentication on Exchange or Office 365 in general, because, um, um, yeah, it's going off next month. Well, potentially next month or worst case, end of December. Didn't you Didn't you say to me that they first announced it three years ago, was it, that it first was talked about or something like that? Yep, September 2019. They first <laughs> did it and then... They, I think they gave everyone a year and then COVID happened and then they were like, okay, it's cool. You know, we'll, cut, we'll, we'll give you another year and then something else happened or COVID continued. And then, yeah, now they're, well, the deadline's been set. It hasn't changed yet. So <laughs> let's hope it actually goes. <laughs> so yeah, folks, if you're still losing legacy authentication, <laughs> make sure you check that out and make sure you're ready for the, the great switch off. Okay. Um, back on track, um, Microsoft uh, Purview. Alan, do you know much about uh, Purview and the uh, dealings with it in the past? Uh, I've done. I've used some of the Purview products. Um, did you speak all Purview? But um, yeah, but yeah. What you know from a high level? Then what is Microsoft Purview? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm just gonna sort of start now and just explain that we're going to be talking around the governance portal, uh, which used to be called Azure Purview. So um, if if you don't know, and Alan, you might be able to summarize this a bit better and keep me on, you know, um, keep me in line if I'm if I'm mistaken. Um, uh, essentially, Purview has been um, Purview has been used as a bucket um, now for um, all of the compliance toy uh, compliance tooling. Um, to, to be put into one place. Um, so, so you have Purview as sort of uh, the same as Entra is now a sort of a bucket for identity. Purview is a, a bucket for, um, for, for compliance. Now, the governance portal is just one part of that. Um, and confusingly, it used to be called Azure Purview, which d doesn't make things <laughs> uh, particularly easy to, to, to explain. Um, Alan, what are the other elements of uh, the purview um, sort of sort of area um, that, that isn't covered by the governance portal? So it will be the majority of stuff in the compliance.microsoft.com portal, uh, but that kind of went around information protection, um, compliance manager, uh, communication compliance, um, and then your... Um, let me think about it now. It's the um, insider risk management, things like that. So it's all anything in there. There's quite a few more pieces to it because there's, there's a few things that are called um, privy as well in that portal. But um, but yes, in effect, it's all been 
rebranded from things like you know, Microsoft Information Protection going to Purview Information Protection. Yeah, so um, the governance portal is the sort of... Um, uh, so l- let me just explain um, what the data governance um, uh, portal is, is, is trying to do. So what effectively what's we're, what we're attempting to do is to manage and govern the data inside of your organization, not just inside of your organization, but also your um, your multi-cloud data. So data that is in like, you know, your actual cloud platforms and also software and a service data, if possible. Um, so so one one big thing to to explain here really is is that we're we're attempting to create a map of your data. Um, and that isn't the actual data itself. It's the it's the structure and the metadata of the uh, of the data that you're storing itself. So if you if you imagine that you your data estate was two, let's say two SQL Server tables, um, we would map each of those tables into our data map, understand the columns of data that are in those that that that, that data that data map, and then assign uh, terms and classification to that data so we can understand what is being stored there. Because if if you can imagine in large, large organizations, understanding where, say, all of your PII data is located, who owns that data, who manages it, and um, and 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 where it's actually being stored, um, can become a very complex problem to have to deal with, especially when you're talking, you know, um, maybe you've got a very simple like you know data estate that like everything's in SharePoint. You know, you, you might be able to, and you're a relatively small company, you might be able to understand, you know, where all of your data is. But then when you start to bring in, you know, um, cloud services like um, uh, storage buckets, um, Azure SQL, uh, data lakes, uh, you know, and, and everything in between, S3 buckets, you know, X, Y, and Z, um, understanding what is being stored in those systems can become very complex to, to, to manage. Then you've also got SaaS applications as well. You know, maybe you've got a HR system, maybe you've got a Workday or a you know a Dynamics talent, whatever your HR solution is. Um, you know, um, you might have data data stored there that is that needs to be managed and and governed um, to to understand, you know, um, you know what you uh, who who organizes and manages that data. So so it's it's really about. Um, uh, 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 building a data map of all your data, identifying your sensitive data classifications. So you're looking for, you know, um, not just sort of intellectual property, but PII information, sensitive information inside of your business. You know, a lot, a lot would argue that all data is relatively sensitive inside of an organization. You know, um, it's, it's relatively, it's usually only stored if it's got some sort of value and inherent sensitivity. And then what's, um, it's also um, uh, uh, attempting to show you as well is an end-to-end data lineage, and that is essentially how data might pass through your organization. So it might start off with you know as some bit of raw information. It may then be processed and then put into another format. So the example that we used in our training session was um, uh, a data factory, showing how uh, data is 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 ingested and then processed and and output into a different place. Um, uh, Purview can actually show us how that data uh, moves through the system. So, so could this be used then 
to identify uh, sensitive data, PII data where it shouldn't be. So you talked about SaaS applications. You may deem a SaaS application uh, you know, okay to you know process you know PII data within your organization, and maybe another one that you don't that is you know capable of connecting to this solution. So you'll be able to see potentially you know data going into somewhere where you don't have the controls you need. I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think if you the the and and I I suppose I have to add context to my my understanding of purview, <laughs> right? So before um, I I essentially attended a uh, a Microsoft run event, um, a train the trainer event, and effectively that is to um, upskill. Uh, people inside organizations to be able to then go and talk about purview, you know, the the values and um, the value that it gives and also have um, some sort of level of uh, sort of boots on the ground experience of using it. Because uh, throughout this day that I, I spent with Microsoft, um, we actually did labs and we actually built our own purview um, instances and, um, and and went through it. So um, I don't have an extensive background in um, uh, compliance and governance. Um, I, I, uh, what the reasoning for me to go through it was to um, because you have your um, data, you know, data governance officers. So you've got your CISOs and your compliance teams and 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 people like that that are trying to classify this data. But then you have an inherent sort of technical requirement as well to map this data, you know, because somebody has to be able to do the connections, you know, configure purview and 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 get the data map, you know, to a place where you can start actually getting insights from it. So we really see that there's two roles there. There's a technical role and more of a cyber advisory um, sort of side of things. So I'm coming at it from the pure technical um, perspective, you know, um, getting purview configured, getting the data map built, adding the metadata to the data map, doing some scanning um, and, and getting classifications and terms built into it. Not necessarily, you know, the business side of understanding that data and and, and risk classifying it and, and things like that from the cyber advisory side. Um, so, so yeah, so, and what, what we thought it might be a good thing to do, and this is a bit different from our, our normal episodes was to, um, go through, um, in high level, um, what I did on that train the trainer, um, day and just talk around, um, the different areas that I, I configured and sort of the value and the reasoning for, for, for doing that. It's not going to be too interactive because obviously we're on a podcast and I can only describe what I went through, but it might be good for me to sort of under to, to, to explain to you the different areas of purview, what they're attempting to achieve and how they do that in a really, you know, sort of a quick and con, you know, concise way. Um, and, and this, tr uh, the, the purview workshop and the train, the trainer event, um, the actual, you know, follow along instructions are all based on GitHub, which we'll include a link to um, uh, with the show notes so that you can go ahead and build your own lab environment as well. We'll also quickly touch on costings and licensing because that is a large part of purview and it can be quite restrictive. So we will go through that, that as well. 
Right. So um, to, to start off with then, um, Alan, have you got any other questions or anything you think I, I should cover um, uh, during this? No, I think you kind of covered the two aspects. I was going to bring it up later maybe, but you know, around there's the, the technical implementation piece, but then there's that kind of like cyber advisory or maybe data analyst kind of piece around how to deal with the data itself and you know build maybe build those maps and stuff um from my my light view of or insight of uh purview governance portal okay cool let's 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 get let's jump in and alan also i'm going through if you've got any questions you know um please do just jump in and, and interrupt me because it is going to be very me talking heavy <laughs> these sections <laughs> so um yeah let, let's start so, so we started off the day um, uh, creating our lab environments. Microsoft were very generous to give us uh, an Azure Pass to create our, our lab environments, which was good, because not only did we need um, purview in the data governance portal, we needed the some resources and some data to actually scan against, right? Because um, you know, in a normal organization, you would have your your buckets of data around your organization ready to go, but obviously for this lab environment. Uh, we didn't have any of that um, to, to to go with. Um, so we had um, sort of a quick start template, which brought us in a data factory, um, so, so, um, some virtual machines, um, a Synapse workspace. And I'll, I'll talk briefly at the end around Synapse because we did go into that product a little bit, which is, again, something that I've never, <laughs> I've got to go another train the trainer event to have a look at Synapse, but they do integrate. Um, and also some storage accounts around, um, and, and one of them was um, converted to a data lake as well um, for, for storage. So um, we had a quick start template. Um, if you if you do go ahead and build you know, uh, this lab environment on GitHub, there is a quick deploy to Azure button. You just got to ensure that you've created the um, resource providers. Um, they they gave us those warnings because on our you know, Azure passes they weren't enabled by default. So if you've got a free trial license, you might not have um, some of them ready to go. Um, th then then we moved on um, to actually creating the the Purview account itself. This is effectively another resource inside of Azure, um, a Purview account resource. So it's it's relatively simple to create it. It's it's just sort of a a name for the the purview account. You give it a location, um, and then there's also a, a managed resource group as well that it creates for its own resources that it needs um, under the hood. Um, because I think it's also good to understand that um, just whilst I'm thinking about it is that that perv the Purview Data Governance Portal runs on top of an open source piece of software called Apache Atlas. So Apache Atlas is the underlying data map um, sort of, uh, um, that's going to build your data map and your glossaries and, and your things like that. And what Purview is, is on top of that is a sort of a management, interf a, a nice management interface and a and and, and more value adds that, that they're going to add like insights and things like that. Um, so, so it's going to create some managed resources under the hood. I will talk briefly later on about REST APIs because it is it is good to understand that their REST APIs are open because they're based on open source um, software. Um, 
you 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 deploy that and then um so so once once you've got that i'm going to just describe some of the um the main sort of areas of 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 purview right so you have a you have a thing called um the data map and the data map is 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 effectively as as it sort of says a map of all of your data sources and how they link together so if if you're if you're from say a database background and you and you've worked with data databases with relationships you know um connecting uh, each other or if you've maybe you've done that in dataverse or something like that you essentially have collections of um of data that are that is that is sourced from uh, different data sources and you link them together with relationships so parent and child relationships to then build sort of a data map up um, across your whole um, data estate. Um, and, and then on when you're building these collections, right? So you build the collections of data. The collections are like buckets of different data sources, if that makes sense. So you might have a collection for, say, I don't know, like maybe you've got like an on-prem, you've got some on-prem data um data that you've got somewhere you might build a collection of you know those that 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 class or those sort of areas of data then you can assign um people to those collections so you can say that you know like um alan owns so we've got a bunch of pii data that we store internally and alan is the um is is the is is the data curator for that so it's it's alan's responsibility um, to to curate the data that is there, to understand what the data is, its life cycle, and how it works through the business. Then you can also, you know, um, connect different levels of people. So you can say, like, who are the data source admins? So you can say, right, well, who's actually managing, like, the connections to that data and the access to that data and things like that? So it's a really, it's, it, it's not just a case of, you know, registering your data in, but it's also, you know, assigning people to that, just assigning people and their roles into that data. So that if you are searching through, if if you are, if you are looking through your company's data, you know, the catalog of data that you've got, you can understand who owns what and who's got responsibility for each of your buckets of data um, inside of your organization. And again, we're not actually looking at the data itself at this point. We're simply talking about the hierarchy and the map of the data inside of your business. The f and and I suppose the f the first sort of thing to you know uh, that you've got to do in order to start to understand the data in your organization is to register a data connector. So there's 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 absolutely tons of data connectors and more are being built absolutely rapidly um, for purview. So things like um, storage accounts, on-prem SQL servers, Azure SQL, I assume Cosmos DB, I can't remember an icon for that, but I'm guessing so. Um, storage accounts, data lakes, S3 buckets, Postgres databases. It's If it stores data, you can probably bet that there's a, there's a, um, there's a, there's a connector for it. Um, so if you're, um, we, we are, are we, we had a data lake that was de deployed as part of our lab environment. 
that didn't have any data in it. So they um, they got us to upload, I believe, some coronavirus stat data to go into it, just as some, some sort of open source um, data to go into there. And then from that, we 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 added it to a, a collection inside of um, inside of uh, a purview. Once the data connector is in place, and it you know if it's a you know, you know, if like, for instance, you put in the storage account credentials that you're going to connect to that storage account. And then you can run a scan on that data. And that scan is going to go and find all of the metadata about that data that you've connected into it. So if you had connected a SQL, let's say just a single SQL table, it will go and pull the columns and the data formats for each of those columns for that um, SQL table. So again, it's it's not going to go in at this stage and actually, you know, um, it's not going to go in at this stage and actually pull in any of the actual data itself. It's just looking at metadata for the structure for you to then classify. Um, we and you can set up automated scanning that goes on over and over again to update these data sources as potential new information is uploaded. Because you can imagine if you were going to connect to a sort of a non-structured data store, like a data lake or an, a, a storage account, you could theoretically like upload any like JSON files at any time, you know, that you might need to then, you know, reclassify and, and add context to in the future. Um, it will go off and discover assets inside of that the data connector that you've created. So for instance, um, in our uh, our data lake, it went and it went and basically found the two JSON files that we had in there, um, and and effectively that was that was the first part of just getting that metadata for those uh, for for the for that um, uh, data lake storage account actually in. Um, the 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 out of the box connectors are just you know sort of click click provide credentials, you know, um, click, click. There is actually a managed identity that you can assign to it so that it can actually do the authentication through basically um, at that point. So you can sort of give the give purview the, the roles on inside of Azure, you can give it the roles um, directly. Um, and so I think it's, um, I think it's also important that it, um, as we've mentioned, as we've mentioned before, that it's not just Azure and it's it's not just sort of um, Azure-based or even cloud-based resources. There are connectors for things like um, HR systems, CRM systems, um, uh, things like that, um, you know, third-party SaaS applications, and also on-prem connectors as well for, you know, your databases that are, that are local to you, if that, if that makes sense. Okay, so it kind of sounds like the first part of even configuring, you know, purview this this part of purview is to, in effect, you know, ide identify your data sources, get them connected, identify who owns them and who is going to manage the connections to them, um, and put them into the the um, the groups in effect to specify you know, who looks after the data, etc., and then start bringing that data in, and then potentially starting to build that map. Um, but at yeah. this point, you're not bringing in any data. You're just getting metadata around what might be in there, all the tables and things like that. That's correct. Yes, e exactly. 
Um, and and I think I think what is when when we were going through this, I was sort of thinking from a you know a consultant's point of view, you know, like how you would how would you go through this you know uh, process with a with a customer, right? Mm. Um, because the the way that I see this, and I'm I'm relatively new to this and relatively naive, but I would assume that a lot of work is going to go into the discovery of the data in an organization when you go in there, right? You know, you might have some customers that completely know like where every single ounce of data is in their data estate and, you know, where things live and what's the information that they're, that they're storing is or the data that they're storing. Um, but my, my assumption is, is that, um, you're going to have to go through a process with a customer to find all of those collections of data and all of those data sources, and then to map all of those people out. Maybe, I mean, you could just do it in purview because you could create the collections ahead of the data sources, right? So you create the you create the buckets of of data first, you know, where are you know, and and the relationships between the um, between the collections. So you do have an area to sort of, you know, design out your your data your data map before you even start registering um, sources. If that if that makes sense. Um, and just just to follow on from that, there there were two sides of registering data sources. There was a, a data lake connector and then an Azure SQL um, or a SQL Server. I can't remember. I think it was an Azure SQL um, connector as well. We effectively didn't have enough time on the day to do both because we overran uh, a few things, uh, going through a few different things. So, um, but on the um, on the SQL connector, you essentially connect to the SQL box, and then what it will do is it will show you all of the tables, and then you can decide which tables you actually want to bring in through that connector. So one connector can actually connect to like multiple tables inside of a SQL database um, at a time. I believe if you had multiple databases, you would have a separate connector per database. But don't quote me on that because I didn't actually go through um, that 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 part of it. So um, once you've got to so moving on to sort of um, uh, search and and browse. Uh, once sources have been registered and you've done your initial scan, you'll start to get data inside of your data catalog, right? And um, this is really where it will start to show representation of real world objects that have, um, so for instance, like a table in Azure SQL or a Power BI report. Um, and then showing these assets in purview, um, it, it, it helps, the it's the first stage of helping people to find data within the organization, right? Because if people are, because, if there is no control or governance of the data, then people aren't going to know where to look for different data sources, you know, or what there is and understanding it. And Alan will probably agree with me when I say visibility of most things when it comes to governance and security is one of the hardest things for an organization. Right, Alan? Yeah, well, I'm just thinking of previous lives and um, just uh, spinning up a new system and just going, yeah, I'll just check the SQL box on the same one. And then the 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 uh, the database guy going, no, 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 you need to put it on a cluster, you know, that sort of stuff. Why why is there like 12 different SQL expresses here? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if those conversations are happening just internally with those technical teams, who's governing that data? Who even <laughs> understands what those exactly. what those boxes yeah. are actually, you know, storing and, you know, and, and the risks associated with that? So now, um, in order to search and browse, we are now going to go and add technical metadata um, at, by adding uh, definitions and classifications to the actual um, to the data attributes themselves. So you know, such as the tables themselves and the columns of data. If you were doing a SQL um, database, so so effectively, effectively, what we did is we selected. I'll use. I'm going to use the example of SQL tables because they're quite easy to understand because effectively they're like a big Excel spreadsheet in 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 effect, right? So what you first do is you you can name the actual t um, say table itself or the 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 entity um, its itself, and you can give it description. So you can say in this table I store X Y and Z data, and maybe you might want to give a justification of why we store that data. Right, because if you're the data, if you're that the owner of that data, um, you should be responsible and give justification as to why that data even needs to exist. Right, because if the if the data's got no value, then there's probably no, you know, no point in actually even storing it. Um, so you can give a description um, to the data. Then you can then you can give it a classification, right? And Microsoft have a built in a bunch of built in classifications. So you are manually classifying this data, right? So in, in our scenario, um, we we had a list of like um, uh, data per um, per state, right? And um, they and basically we use the inbuilt classification of world cities, so we could actually understand what was in that you know that that. Um, like blob of data. Sorry, I'm absolutely messing up the explanations because it's hard for me just to not visually show you through um, like the UI. But effectively, you're applying a classification to that data um, of what's in that data. Then what? Then what it'll do is it will show you the schema of the data. So if you've ever worked with SQL before, you will have um, for each of your tables you have a schema, and that and that effectively tells you what columns you have in that in that in that table. So you might have like an ID, you might have somebody's name, which is a string, you might have somebody's surname, which is another string, you might have their email address, you know, if we're talking about PII information. And what you're then doing is you're, it will give you the schema because it scanned it from the connector. It will tell you what the data types are, and then allow you to describe what you are actually storing in each of those, you know, in each of those columns. So you can say, right, you know, we are storing users' email addresses. Why are we storing that? Because we need it for login. Or we're storing their first name because we send them emails and we want them to be personalized, right? So it's just understanding what, because you could have a column named, you know, first name, or it could be called F name, or it could be called name, or it could be called FN or N, you know, like it could be, it could be hard to actually classify it from the from the metadata itself. And then what you can then do is then you can give a con you can create contacts um, for that um, for that uh, you know uh, object of data. So in this example, a table in SQL. So you can say who the 
um, who the experts are. So like who are the people that are maybe on the ground looking after this data? You know, whose role and responsibility on a day-to-day basis is it to, 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 to curate and understand this data? And then you've also got owners that you can assign to it as well. So you might say like um, your head of, I don't know, let's say you had a table with all your HR information in it. Your owner might be your HR director, your head of HR or your H- one of your HR leads. Because ultimately, it's their responsibility to manage, you know, the, the life cycle of the data and whether it's actually relevant or, or, or not for the business. And then there's uh, effectively there's there is ways to bulk edit this data as well. So if you if you if you were to import a bunch of tables and you didn't want to have to go through like every single table setting the owners and things like that, um, Purview does have some shortcuts in to be able to actually edit this this stuff um, relatively um, quickly. Okay, so so next stage then of getting the data in and getting some metadata is then to kind of um, I guess document the the environment or give you the opportunity to where it rather than it being in separate documents because it's different products SaaS applications etc you know it's everywhere you can in effect have one place to say this is this is the table this is what it's why we store it etc this column we store this data because of xyz and as you said you've got owners of the overall data and also the experts of the actual data that's correct yeah yeah, so 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 effectively, we are we are saying that um, we're yeah we're we're adding that layer of context onto the metadata that we've collected, so that in the future, and it's it from from what I can see, it is all manual at the moment, right? We are not doing any automatic classification or anything like that. We are effectively at this point just manually labeling up you know, um, data sources and data tables um, that, that are in the business. Okay, so the next part to, to, to go through is, is, is the glossary. So it, the, the glossary is around adding further domain knowledge and context and effectively tagging um, data inside of your organization. And the the complex part of me explaining glossary to you is is it's a very it's it's kind of very subjective to your your organization's data. I'll use a very simple example for you. So if you if you think about it, you could have um, hierarchies of uh, business terms. So, for instance, you could tag different sets of data for, say, different uh, business domains in your organization. So, for instance, like finance, marketing, sales, and HR. So, you could create terms and link data sources, well, you know, data assets um, in your organization to to different business domains inside of your organization. Which would then, because what you might have is you might have like disparate data sets for one you know, business area. So your, you know, um, HR finance data, a bit of the finance data might be in the HR system. It might be in some custom reporting and, you know, um, uh, Azure data factory work that you've got. And then inside of, you know, um, 
Power BI, you might have, you know, some other data or, you know, about finance. So finance data could be spread around your organization, but you might, it, you, you might not, you might not be able to organize your fine, your, your finance data in collections, if that makes sense, because your collections might be looking at different actual applications that you've got, you know, in your business. Um, uh, and what you can also do is, and this is where it starts to get a little bit complicated for me and my small brain, is glossary terms can also have relations to other glossary terms. So you could have like finance, team one, team two, team three. So you might have finance, you know, invoicing, credit control, um, whatever the different like areas. Sorry, I'm not very good with finance. I should be. My wife's an accountant. But um <laughs> all the different areas of finance, you know, and you might want to break that term down even further to get more granularity, right? Because because what, what we're trying to do is we're trying to layer on a representation of the real world onto our data map so that we can query it in the future. So if we want to if we want to filter all of our insights and analytics on finance data, we'll use these terms uh, we'll use these terms to do that in the future. So they they took us um, they took us through creating a like a parent term, which they used um, Contoso for that, which effectively would be like your company's parent term, right? And I've and I think that's effectively just a like a root like term for for your organization, kind of like root management group sort of thing. Like that's how I sort of saw it in my. I, my, I guess that could brain. be used if you had um if you're dealing with partners or um mergers acquisitions etc where you could have the have it at the top layer sort of thing yeah yeah and you and in your purview might sit in your you know parent company tenant or something like that and have you know connections into others right so yeah 100 percent um and then underneath that they they effectively got us to create a um, a, another term that was linked to a to a business unit. Um, so they they created a a business unit template, which was like sales, marketing, finance, human resources, and IT. Um, and and we and we connected that in. Um, they also showed us bulk importation of terms as well. So I believe, and I'm not a cyber advisory expert whatsoever, but they were explaining how some companies already have their terms mapped out that you can effectively import via CSV um, into, into the system. Um, terms can also um, um, terms can also have a, a status, whether they're draft or approval. So as, you, as, as you're adding new terms into the system, you have the ability to, you know, um, draft them out and then and then um, make them approved um, in the future you can also export them so if you want to export them update them and import them back in i believe that's also possible to do but we didn't actually go through that then they walked us through actually um, assigning a term to a to a um, to an actual asset itself so we assigned it to an actual um we actually assigned it to um, a like a JSON file in a um, data uh, data lake, uh, and effectively it showed. Um, effectively, it just it it showed us um, it showed like a tag on the on the data asset itself once it had been assigned. 
Um, then they also showed us accessing different data via that, ta- you know, that th- those terms effectively. So you would you would access a term and then you would click on it to view the different data sources that you've got. So you've got a different way of querying through um, y- your your data set. So yeah, so it's hard. I think it's I think it's it is quite complicated for me to really explain the glossary without you actually going through the system yourself, because when you do it, I think it will make a lot more logical sense. I effectively saw it as parent-child tagging in my simplistic, you know, brain, um, but it, it could well be um, something different. Um, so the next, the next session, uh, sex session that we did, it's quite a long day. We had quite a few modules that we <laughs> that we went through, and we had lots of uh, things things to do. Um, and we ha- we've got classifications that we then um, talk uh, uh, talk through, and classifications are effectively tags of what the actual data that is being stored. We talked about classifications. Um, um we talked about classifications you know sort of sort of earlier um but this is where um automated classification rules are, uh, can be actually put in and i believe what it's doing is is running these classification rules actually on the data itself when it does those scans right so what's so kind of like um dlp like classification rules like this the same i believe the same no, not is it DLP? Yeah, it is DLP classification rules. That's right. Um, no sensitivity labels and the rules that come in from that side, I believe, are also duplicated over this side as well. I can remember them. Say, sorry, I'm just pulling something out of the back yeah, of my brain. You can synchronize them in, can't you? You can synchronize them in. Um, yes, you can. And you can create your own as well, which is good. So you can create your own regular expressions to effectively find different things. So they um, they use the example of Twitter handles um, to add a um, a custom um, classifi- classifier in, um, and what that effectively do is it will um, it will go and look for um, different different values um, in, inside of your inside of your data and classify them um, automatically. Um, they took us through that. Um, adding a data set, um, a data, a, a Twitter handle data set into our data lake, and then running the scan again for it to automatically tag um, as as um, as as Twitter handles. So this is actually going. These classifications are actually going into the data, running you know um, Microsoft's. Um, Microsoft's um, own internal classifications and also being able to run your own classifications um, as, as well and develop them. Yes, that's the sensitive information types. That's it. Yes. Yeah, sorry. I I can never remember like where it actually sits, but um, when we were on the, when we were on the call, somebody specifically asked that question because it was, um, they looked very similar. Like there's, you know, it, the list was incredibly similar. And um, uh, the person that was um, uh, running the session, uh, basically, they, they, I don't think they actually a hundred percent knew, but they thought they were the same, the set, the same one brought in. I, I, I don't know. I, I could have remembered that that part in, um, 
uh, incorrectly. Um, does that make sense so far, Alan? Um, about what we've what we've gone through there. Yeah, yeah, I think it makes sense that you're potentially creating rules using those sensitive information types to, in effect, classify your data. If I guess if you cut, don't you know, maybe there is a change in um, a data type, maybe or a new tables or columns added to a piece of information that it will hopefully you know classify or at least alert on classifying it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what we're, we're effectively doing is we're effectively hunting for data in our estate at that point as well. Right. You know, and, and trying to understand what is there um, maybe without having to go through it line by line. Well, exactly. Just quickly that, you know, you may think that is what the data is in there. Correct. And then you find out that there's more in there than you were bargained for. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 100%. Uh, the next area that they took us through was uh, lineage and lineage is effectively how data moves through your organization. Um, we use the example of a data factory running um, an extract, transform and load ETL process. And what is nice inside of, and this is where the sort of first party integrations are really nice because if you did happen to have an ETL process that was run in say data factory, you can actually see the steps that it takes inside of data factory and how the data moves through the system and where it ends up um, afterwards. Um, we, 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 we went through it. They gave us the, um, the, 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 um, the, the data factory sort of out of the box and, and data factory isn't an area that I know particularly well. I haven't actually built anything in there for, for, for quite some time. Um, but the um, what was really good was the um, visual representation it gave at the end. It showed like um, the two data lake um, assets that it was pulling from. It gave a description of what it was doing and then a link to actually open it in Data Factory so you could get there quickly to actually go and inspect the steps of what it was doing and then showing where the data um, went out afterwards as well. So... Um, so that actually, that data factory itself actually comes up as an actual asset inside of the data catalog. So you can actually see it as a, like an object. So you can like track what it's doing inside of your organization. What's great then is, is because if you're looking at say the output side of that ETL, you know, like it's like um, a couple of, you know, a couple of things go in, it does something and something pops out on the other side you've then got context of where that data actually came from and what systems are actually being used to, 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 to generate that data. So again, as a common theme with everything, it's discovery, it's describing what is there. It is making sure that the business understands the data that it has and how data moves through the organization. That makes sense. So you've been through all that hard work right? You've found all your assets. You've done your metadata tagging. You've, um, you've understood who your owners are. You've class, you've created terms, um, for your data, a glossary of terms, uh, for your data to describe what your data looks like. You've then classified the data to understand what the data actually is. You know, what are you storing? Um, and you've also hopefully built some, some of your own cl custom classifiers, you know, maybe you've got your own, 
record IDs or customer IDs or, or something like that that you want to track. Um, then comes on to insights. And the way that I saw insights was like, in my mind, it was like Power BI for your for your you know for your purview um basically um you can you can look through your um you can look through your total data estate to understand what data has been curated uh, curated to start off with so what has been classified what's not been classified how many assets have currently got coverage and what's not got coverage because you could just you could just connect everything in not build any terms not build any classifications don't assign it to any owners or anything and then you could you could basically show like where you are on that transformation um journey to get it there um and then you can obviously and, and part of that is showing who the owner is and 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 whatnot and it will give you health about different collections inside of your organization so inside of a collection, which is essentially a bucket of assets and connectors, um, you'll be able to see what assets you've got, you know, what's been classified, what's not been classified. So you can break down those numbers, um, uh, those numbers uh, for you as well. It's obviously going to over time because this is going to go back and repeatedly scan those data sources. So if you've got if you've got yourself a SQL you know database, and then you um, let's say you add a couple of extra tables to that it will go and pick up those tables in your data sources and then it will say, okay, well, I've got some new data now that's not been classified. It's not being controlled, you know, go ahead and, and get, get started on that work. So it's really going to give you sort of operational insights around, you know, uh, building of your data map and catalog and, and understanding um, how all of that works. Um, then you can, you can, so that that's really from a, the first part is from a data stewardship point of view. So like who owns what and how things are, um, how things are sort of looking from a, a people perspective. And the second side of it is an asset perspective. So what sort of assets have you got in your organization? You know, these are our data lakes. These are our SQL servers. These are our X, Y, and Zs. Um, and you can see it from that side. So how many data sources you have, how much data is in them. And how they track over time, the file types and extensions of stuff that you're, you know, maybe your blobs that you're storing and, and, and your text-based um, files. Then the next part is to look at it from the sort of viewpoint of um, uh, the glossary. So this is really why we are, you know, going through the work of, of, of building that glossary. Because what we're, what we're then, what we're then doing is we are being able to slice through and understand the data from a terms perspective. So how many terms there are, um, how many terms have, say, been um, approved, but they've got no assets listed to them yet. Like, you know, we approved this term to be added into our glossary, but we didn't bother to connect any assets to it. So why, why have we got that glossary of information, if that makes sense, right? You know, we're, we're saying we're storing, you know, this information, but we're not actually linking it to any data in our, our, our data map. Um, and then you can do it from the classification view. So you can look at, you know, how many, how many files have been classified, you know, what their classifications are, you know, what's your, you know, if you've got like um, a classification category of like personal PII information, how much is there, 
you know how it's growing over time and and things like that so you can really get you know uh information on onto that then you've got the sensitivity labels as well um so a viewpoint of that like we've talked about um automated sensitivity labeling as well so that's also going to bring in um that's going to be really important um to understand how much of those sensitivity labels are being detected and and what you've got inside of your organization cool yeah that sounds very good so you can get an idea again that's probably helping you see well one way your data is um and also like you said it's the as the data changes you're you're seeing that view of it and that you can decide yeah where you need to um make changes or potentially there is misconfiguration as you said around the the glossary terms yes. that you know you've you've created them because it makes sense to but you've not actually got anything that uses it and yep. is that a problem or is that true yeah <laughs> yeah might be yep. yeah and 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 i think those insights are going to give you control over what's happening over time you know like um what's the new sensitive um information types that are entering my you know my business over time and and trying to understand that then just just moving on from there we have a, a very quick quick sort of overview of monitoring um essentially it's the diagnostic logs you can send them to wherever you'd like um to track um sort of you know the scan um scan activity and, and things like that so it's sort of the health of purview to understand if it's actually running and and it's it, it's it's operating in the in the correct way um we didn't really um go over that too much to be totally honest with you um it was more of a we configured it and you know just saw the output um output from it now this is the this is the bit that i've really not got a huge technical area in so i'm going to go over it relatively quickly but i did want to include it because if you are using azure synapse um it does allow you to um to do an integration into azure synapse I'm not I'm not going to describe it in too much detail because honestly I we did it for like 5 minutes so I can't um I can't really uh, show you that uh, show you that here but the I I I believe I'm not I'm not going to make a recommendation as into the feature benefits of doing it because I can't I can't understand it from the synapse perspective right so I'm not going to attempt to but uh, take it from me and from Microsoft there's a first party integration into synapse I'm not going to try and butcher <laughs> this this area of <laughs> this area of the product um so that's that's basically through the main set of modules that we that we did um the it has now been it has now been extended um, with some optional learning modules that we didn't we didn't get to do basically what I've just described in fifty five minutes on we've got to wrap up soon now <laughs> but um, we effectively did over a day because um, we were building the labs it was actually really interesting to to go through the product because there's a lot there it's a, it's a it's a bit of a beast to to to, to get your head around uh, and I don't I don't proclaim to be <laughs> an expert in this whatsoever but one big part that they did really touch on and they wanted to talk about is the rest api so so effectively um 
you can you you can effectively do um the the vast majority of things that you can do from the ui you can do through the api that's that's effectively what they were um they 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 were doing and um the the building of the building of the catalog is is really important so what they what they wanted to get across was that it was exposing the out of the box um um apache atlas api as well so if you are if you are an organization that is already using apache atlas in your in your workflow and um a move to purview is something that you're thinking about and maybe you have and i think this is more for a you know sort of advanced you know um data governance uh, scenarios i could be wrong on that um but um you could reuse your existing connection straight into into purview because essentially under the hood it is running apache atlas um that's pr- that's pretty much it and i have i have flown over a very large product in um in in purview uh, very quickly is there any anything alan that you want to anything sort of areas that you want me to try and answer or, or clarify for you? Well, I think, I think you've done a very good job of getting a day's worth of training into just under an hour, um, in, in, you know, into this podcast. Um, and, you know, and even so that was quite, you know, I guess high level as well, really going through it. So well done. Um, but one, one part, I guess we, we, everyone's probably going to be asking is as always, how much does it cost? What licenses do I need? So it's <laughs> it's quite interesting around pricing for um for for the data governance portal, um and i th- I think it's i I think it it comes down to the actual resources and requirements that are required to 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 run this to do the scanning, um because effectively there the the main cost is in um effectively running this this the the workers that run the scanners you can scale them from a minimum i think of like one virtual core i think it is something like that but effectively you're looking at from a even the most simplistic implementation is going to cost you 300 pounds a month minimum to 400 pounds a month minimum right um, because you can scale those workers down to like, I think it's like one unit, one capacity unit, I think they call it. Um, but you can't get it any lower um, other than that. I am just going to bring up the Azure. Um, I just want to make sure I'm just um, data governance pricing. I just want to get the terminology just correct for you because I just want to make sure that I'm not, um, I'm not absolutely... Yeah, so whilst you're doing that, I think as well, because that's kind of a little bit, but I think the idea is you've got to understand how often you need to scan the different data sets, isn't it? How often you need to versus cost at some point. You, know, you may not want to scan every hour. Some stuff you might need to, some of it you might need to be like once a week or once a day kind of thing to reduce that or optimize that cost, I guess. Yeah, the, the the part that costs the money is the elastic data map, right? And you have to have at least one capacity unit running at any time to support that. And one 
capacity unit per hour costs 34p in UK money. So that is a base cost of two, you know, just rough maths in GBP for 732 hours average month of £254 just to run that part of it. And you have to have that active. Now, that can scale. Um, that that <laughs> that can scale up to any, like, uh, what's the highest one? Like any, uh, effectively any number of capacity units. And, and that's effectively what they were saying is like, you can control your costs by limiting the amount of maximum capacity units. And then, you know, um, we, we were discussing that, well, you know, you've got to be a certain sort of organization that can, can, can absorb a, you know, 200 and it's not 254 pounds a month because you've got other things to, to go on uh, top of that. So, for instance, like, you know, you've got, you know, data map population and, and, and things like that. There's data map enrichment as well. So, like you said, all of these scanning jobs and jobs that need to run, you know, over over time. Um, so you've got to layer that, that you've got to absolutely layer that on top. So I would I would also, you know, just be cognizant of um, um, of of actually you know, putting this in, you know, even inside your organization and your in, in, in or a customer, you know, you are going to have not just the cost of populating it, managing it and, and getting value from it, but the, the underlying um, cost is there. What is great, it's all cloud-based. There's pretty much no management of the underlying application or infrastructure. You don't have to bring up an Apache Atlas installation yourself. You know, that isn't, that isn't free to, to do that, if you see what I mean. Um, the part that's complex, um, which I still haven't worked out, is you know uh, if you've got MSDN credits or something like that, you're not ever going to fit this inside of an MSDN you know credit for a lab environment, and that's what's been quite restrictive for us in order to you know get a lab environment up and running because um, you know having a 250 to 350 or 400 pound a month bill to set up a lab environment. Um, is an awkward conversation to have, you know, when it's coming out at five thousand, you know, say five thousand pound to five thousand pound a year. So, but but I I do I I do definitely see from my perspective I do see the value that you know building a data map could add to an organization, you know, to add and you know to to govern and control data um, and to give you more visibility of it. And again, I just have to preface. I'm not a purview expert whatsoever or a compliance expert, um, but I think it's good to understand, you know, what challenges businesses are facing in this this area and what they're trying to do to to resolve it. Yeah, I guess you've got to understand of, you know, this system's doing it for you. There's a lot of, you know, there is a lot of automation. There. There's a lot of easy mapping perspective. I mean, imagine trying to do this manually against all those data sets and writing the documentation or, making sure people, you know, staff are using the right glossary terms and things like that. You know, you're not going to see any of that and, you know, having to do a report, you know, if you need to do a report once a year or however you want to see that data, it's just going to be. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. And I, and, and I haven't actually talked about it, but there is a full like RBAC, you know, role-based, you know, uh, control system. So you are just paying for the instance itself, not per user as well. Right. Because you could, you know, because if you had 10 users using it, it's, you know, you could theoretically say, well, it's £40 a month per user, you know, you know, and you might think actually, you know, for my 
my data governance team, you know, if I've got a 10 strong data governance team to run this, you know, that sounds pretty reasonable to me at that point, doesn't it? It's just, it's just hard to, it's hard to start, I think is the, is the, you know, and the concern around it is 400 pounds to start, not, you know, <laughs> as, as a cap. So, um, dependent on the size of your data estate, you may need to adjust um, those things as well. Okay, um, let's wrap up. I think um, everybody will be um, sort of um, ready to to finish on purview now. Um, but if you've enjoyed this episode, um, please do consider subscribing if you'd like to listen to more of this sort of content in the future. We have many, uh, many topics that we'd like to cover and your listens and support is what will continue to fuel the podcast going forward. We also have the ability to give feedback. So if there's a bit more of this that you want Sam to dive into, whether he wants to or not might be a question, but um, send us some feedback. Um, there should be a link in the show notes to in effect do that. And then we can see it and we can, you know, it's good, you know, good or bad. Uh, exactly. Yeah. 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 We're, we're, we're here to, to talk about topics that people want to listen to. Right. You know, we're not just talking to, we're not spending time talking to each other because, <laughs> because we want to, you know? Um, so yeah, it's all, it's all driven from, uh, fr- from what um, everybody wants to listen to. Uh, so Alan, uh, next episode, um, I think this one's, this one's for you. So uh, what are you going to be talking about? Well, you did say people are going to be bored of purview, but um, I'm going to talk about Microsoft purview information protection. So classifying um, data from the, the, the client center side thing, Office 365, things like that, and kind of probably explain it a, a bit so that it kind of ties into you know what you, you've been talking about as well. But yeah, should be good. Okay, great. Okay, well, um, thanks everyone for listening and we'll catch you on the next one. Yep, thanks everyone. Thanks for listening. Speak to you soon. Bye.